you kind of have to be slow before you can allow to be fast. And this is definitely what I've done in the past as, as a multiple times as a mistake is that I just ride and ride and, and, and until I'm dead and then I pick up myself and I ride again next day when I, until I'm dead. And, but now I, I, I've learned and I, I know that I can still do that. My physiologically, I can still do that, but, uh, but it's not probably the best way to build up uh, my cardiovascular health and maybe even not the quickest way. So kind of really going along the lines, what, what the study is actually saying is that the volume is there to build the base. And, and, and that's also what I would like to, and I tell all to every one of my patients is that we first, we need to build that base. The Framework podcast is hosted by researcher Katerina Mitteva and World Tour Cycling Sports Chiropractor Dr. Martin Krum. We will be merging academic and clinical knowledge on how to train smart and recover faster. With this in mind, we're trying to solve common problems athletes or health-oriented people may encounter in their journey to seeking improved health and performance. Well, hello, dear listeners. It's episode number two, and thank you so much again for tuning in today. It's going to be a long episode, so be prepared. Uh, but before, hello, Kat, on the other side. Hi, Martin. Super happy that we're doing this again. Yes, uh, so, as I said, it's going to be a long one, uh, so let's jump right into it. Uh, Kat, what can our listeners expect from the episode uh, number two today? Well, today um, we've decided to do something that we've actually started a little bit during our Instagram lives, um, isn't it, Martin? Where we started to kind of dip in a little bit into the cardiovascular area um, and training, and um, so... I think um, the main three points that we would like to speak about today is one, why is cardiovascular health, um, particularly how science measures it and what are the best ways of measuring it. Um, two, which is obviously my favorite, what is atherosclerosis, different types, and it's important to longevity. And three, is all training a good training, uh, which is a very, very interesting topic, which um, I'm pretty sure that um, not many people speak about that, at least not that I've seen, um, maybe because it's the unpopular opinion, but um, let's see where we get. Sure, sure. And also to, to validate these three points, we, we're going to lie quite heavily on three papers mainly, but I'm sure Kat will bring in another ton, uh, tons of other uh, quotes from papers and, and ideas. So, um, yeah, so these are the three main points and we will heavily look into cardiovascular health and cardiovascular work, uh, like how the cardiovascular health is important to oh, your, uh, your everyday life. So having said that, um, the first paper I think what we're going to really lie heavily on uh, and discuss about is it's a paper from 2019 in from US where they took 122,000 uh, people, patients, and they actually did a VO2 measurement, VO2 max measurements, and then they got a bunch of data, which we will go into later. But um, I thought before we really go into down that the rabbit hole and to lay a little foundation, what is a VO2 max and why is it such important kind of a three letters and, and the number, uh, especially in the recent years and more and more so. So historically, Kat, uh, the VO2 max used to be very much or heavily um, talked about in sports, and especially in endurance sports. 
as this was a measurement of, of uh, how much oxygen uh, per minute a athlete can uh, uh, uptake. And obviously, the higher the number, the better the potential for body to uh, use, uh, utilize oxygen uh, for physical activities. But over the recent years, I probably would say the last 15, 20 years, and even more so the last five years, the, the change has been quite um, interesting. It's, it's more and more becoming to, uh, into a normal, uh, normal medical field that it's becoming important to understand what the cardiovascular health is doing in regards to a, uh, a one's health. And that's why I think this study, what we're going to talk briefly now, is, is super important and why I think every GP practice in the world should have data on their patients' VO2 max measures alongside their cholesterol levels, alongside their blood measures, uh, blood, other blood measurements, uh, ECGs, and so on. It's just such a viable and such an important um, uh, number and, uh, and uh, also output from a patient's uh, perspective. I think I completely agree with you in terms of uh, the fact that it's becoming more and more clear that um, evaluation of cardiorespiratory fitness strongly correlates with um, long-term mortality. But uh, there is also another paper that we briefly touched upon. It's not just mortality. It's also um, how you live your life, right? So there was a study that actually correlated cardiorespiratory fitness um, with decreased chance of getting some of those four dark horsemen of chronic disease, which are cancer, diabetes, cardiovascular disease itself, and dementia uh, in the forms of um, Alzheimer's, for example, uh, among other types of dementia. So I think it's becoming really, really clear that um, people do need to look after their cardiovascular health, uh, not just to live longer, but also how what what is the quality of the life that you have where you live longer because um we all know that um having any of those four chronic disease among other chronic disease uh can actually really really reduce your quality of life and uh make life quite unpleasant um by reduced mobility um which we call sometimes morbidity um and also like intake of a lot of medications which actually have a lot of side effects just because we have advanced ways um and protocols to treat certain conditions and current conditions doesn't mean that the patient's life is uh an easy ride they are sometimes have to take if they have like diabetes and cardiovascular disease or something else sometimes they have to take like literally a whole pharmacy of medications and um all of those, um, due to the, all of the side effects, regularly end up into not very pleasant quality of life. So I think um, cardiorespiratory fitness is should be a main goal for everybody, like a certain level of what they can achieve individually. And then maybe later on we can speak about um, how that can be achieved. Look, you mentioned a longevity, and I, I can't emphasize more how important this is because yes we are living longer uh, but the quality of life is not necessarily improving within this time frame and time span and that's one of the things where vo2 max becomes so so useful as as i said before it's the it's it's the how much uh, milliliters per minute 
a one's body is capable of, of transfer uh, using oxygen which means oxygen is basically everything it's for every tissue it's for the brain so basically how you think what you think uh, how well you can think even more practical uh, how well you can play either with your grandchild or, grandchild or how well you can um, move up the stairs um, we know from the studies that one of the hardest things for people who are at the 70s is to get up from all fours when they are on the whole fours they are not dependent they are independent they are not independent anymore sorry they are not they are not independent anymore yes so means their their the cardiovascular fitness so the the, the capability of uh, using muscles um, becomes severely decreased. And the other thing, when, when we talk about uh, the VO2 max, I think what we should really talk about is, is what are the main three drivers or, or what, where, the, the, where the limitations can, can lie in. And physiologically, there is, is obviously it's a bit more complex, but physiologically you have three, three main areas. You have the lungs, uh, where, where the, the big uh, gas exchange takes place, and then you have the heart, where the stroke uh, volume is the key. And then you have the gas exchange in the tissue. So that being either the, the muscle, being a soft, uh, other soft tissue, uh, being the brain structures, and so on. So you have these three key, um, let's say, uh, drivers. And, and I think from the studies, what we see most often, one of the first things to decrease uh, with one's uh, lowering uh, VO2 max is, is, the, is the capability of heart to pump uh, blood. So the stroke volume goes down. And if we're talking about stroke volume, it's basically a heart rate. So heart rate times uh, the volume uh, one beat can push out basically. So you want to have a high heart rate because then you can push out more blood more frequently. And obviously you want to have the heart as big as possible so it can accumulate more blood to push in the body as fast as possible. Um, I know I'm making it very simple. No, 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 it's absolutely perfect. Uh, when Kat is, is listening to that, I'm sure it's Something more Something I just wanted so to add, but it's also, yeah, <laughs> but so just how, to kind of how long a, can you also sustain that heart rate, right? Because um, VO2 max is also a measure of oxygenation. So how long can you oxygenate your heart, uh, to your tissues, including your heart? to be able to sustain that state of elevated stroke volume. Sure, sure. The, the other thing I would mention, though, is that with the increasing age, the, the biggest uh, decrease seems to be uh, the heart rate. So the, the problem seems to be that the heart rate cannot increase anymore. Uh, uh, so let's say in your 40s, 50s, 60s, there seems to be a continuous uh, decrease in, 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 the, in the maximum heart rate. And obviously when the maximum heart rate decreases, then this happens obviously also for the tissue that the, the, the oxygenation for the tissues uh, decreases. And then if you try and yeah. push too hard, then somebody <laughs> needs to compensate for it. And it usually is the poor heart muscle that has to compensate for it. Yes, and then obviously we have a, um, uh, either a left uh, ventricular hypertrophy and, and so on, which is a totally different topic, and we will keep that door closed, but yeah. <laughs> excellent comment uh, on, on that side. I have planned so, a future podcast of speaking everything <laughs> left ventricle, so, so <laughs> we're going to stay, stay clear away from it today. <laughs> oh, 
Okay, I, I will I will listen on that episode too because I don't think I have much to add there. But anyway, uh, and a little bit more on the practical note on the VO2 max or the or the or the um, exercise volume out of the, for example, from the lungs is is that um, oh, sorry from the from the heart is that a let's say by by easy exercising your your heart is, is pushing out let's say around ten liters of uh, of blood uh, per minute. Whereas in heavy exercise, it's about 15 to 20 liters. And, and some of the elite athletes can go up to 30 to 40 liters. Um, so you can, you can see how big the difference can be and how adaptable actually the heart can be with, uh, with correct uh, training. And that obviously means also the, the, the physiological um, outcome is, is, is totally different. I really like what you said about adaptability because um, maybe, maybe you haven't because you have been a long long time athlete um at least for me who was a couch potato like several years ago um adaptation has never been something that crossed my mind a couple of years ago but then you know we've many of us have been in a situation where you go to the gym and you're like i haven't been to the gym like in months i can obviously like go on the treadmill and like starts running and then you start running you're like no i don't think that's going to happen so uh adaptability in the heart but also in the blood vessels there was like some really old paper i actually can't remember it but i will i'll go and look after this and maybe link it um underneath this podcast where there was actually a paper study that has shown that it takes more than four weeks or up to eight weeks for your cardiovascular system to adapt but it actually takes less time for yeah. you to uh, lose that adaptation so which is actually very obviously very unfair um biology is a little bit unfair in that case where you know you work really really hard for your adaptation to to take time but then um you could actually lose it relatively quickly not fully but um if you leave it like up to like four weeks you could actually fully uh lose some of those beneficial uh, metabolic uh, adaptations that occur at the level of blood vessels and the heart, which I think is a little bit unfair, but it's also important for people to remember in their own fitness journey, because I suppose that that's what this podcast is about, um, that we help people to not feel guilty that um, sometimes you would probably lose adaptations, but that's not okay. Um, you could always go back to it, right? Um, but it's okay to lose adaptations. Sure. And uh, we will talk a bit more practical application at the end of this uh, this podcast where we, where I, I share some of the ideas what, what I would recommend uh, on doing and then how I would uh, train myself, for example, and what the science is, is lately they, uh, telling us or uh, what would be the, the most... Um, proficient ways of, of achieving certain things but anyway so that's kind of in a nutshell a bit of a background about the vo2 and its importance for one's uh, physical life um you know from my personal point of view when we when we talk a little bit more about the vo2 is like it's it's one of those things which is actually we don't think about it but it's super important as as like for example, I went skiing with my kids, and I want to be able to do this also when I am in my forties, fifties, yeah. and sixties, especially in sixties. Um, and that requires that means because what we see from the studies is that it requires early work. So it, it requires the work from twenties, thirties, forties to be able to enjoy doing things uh, in your sixties and seventies. So you can't be in your sixties and start. Now, okay, it's, it's, it's shit. Things are going downhill. My GP said I need to start losing weight and I need to start exercising. I would almost say it, it's too late. Yes, you can do some and you can probably improve some of the things, 
but you will not catch up, uh, for example, on your VO2 max levels uh, where where they used to be. There is a kind of like a silent um, thinking or, or or idea that it's around the VO2 max. If you don't do anything, it decreases around. 10% per decade after your 40th uh, year of life. So when you are totally sedentary, you you lose, let's say, 10% roughly per, per, per decade. So you can imagine if you started as, a let's say, your athlete athlete and your VO2 max is around between 80 and 90 and you get completely sedentary, your margin of error is, is way larger. You can lay around quite a bit longer or do absolutely nothing for many, many, many years, maybe 30 years, and this person will still not end up at the same level of the VO2 max as a person in their 60s who who has been sedentary, or let's say in their 40s, who has been sedentary for the rest of their life, they, they have the same measurement numbers. And that's scary because that means that 40-year-old is almost capable of, of doing not much anymore. They can walk a bit, they can go maybe up the stairs, up the stairs a few times and so on, but they are not physical, physiologically active anymore. And uh, and when they are in their 50s, it's, 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 it's almost impossible or super, super hard to start improving on that. And, and that's why we see more and more on that note that you don't have to do a lot, but you have to do continuously something for your cardiovascular health in terms of training, um, if your work is not very physical, and even if the work is physical, you still need some some structure in in in, in what you are doing to keep that heart working, keep that heart pumping, and I think that, that the, the bar is actually really low. So that's my my <laughs> rumble on. on the no, cup. this was a beautiful, beautiful rumble. Actually, like we, with absolutely everything, but. I think it's an important message for people to understand is that the bar is actually very low. Like your heart is actually capable of surviving quite a lot <laughs> across many years. So in order to get yourself to like that tipping point yeah, yeah. where in st- in large cohort studies, we actually see a correlation of improved health. You actually don't need to do that much. I think um, you, you will hate this, Martin, because you hate the med thing, but <laughs> um there's this metabolic units thing that we the people use in uh, cardiovascular measurements that probably is not particularly relevant to um, regular people that don't have access to VO2 measuring equipment. <laughs> but um, essentially, um, you are required to do, I calculated, I think it's like just above eight hours of uh, met hours per week, which would say that um, eight hours of where your oxygen consumption is above 3.5 milliliters per body per kilogram of your body so that might mean not mean much but i actually think like in simple terms you actually don't need to do that much and if we actually look at some the other guidelines um you actually need to do only 150 minutes of vigorous activity roughly per person uh per week so it's actually not that much when you actually Think about like what is counted as vigorous activity that will elevate your heart rate um, to a point that's not dangerous. It could be even like a brisk walk. Like it doesn't even have to be complicated. It, it, it could be something as simple as a brisk walk or like a 10 minute run five times per week. Like, I don't know. It's not, it's not that much. Maybe not five times, maybe a bit more, but <laughs> you get what I mean. It's not as much, and it's not is not that much. Yeah, no, I totally get, and and obviously sometimes with the guidelines, it's 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 a bit of a um, 
it's it's sometimes a bit questionable uh, but it always comes down to the question it depends it really depends where is that single person starting from yeah. so when this person has never done or anything or they are recovering from a certain injury then these guidelines can sometimes be quite uh, useful but, but uh, i also think like the guidelines are there i mean to... if we're really looking Sorry. about talking yeah. about yeah, yeah, go for it. No, the guidelines are there. Yes, I, I agree uh, with that fact. But if we're looking at, uh, at the, we're talking about the metal, uh, the the met hours. Uh, you, you already brought that up. The thing with, for me with met hours is that it's it's uh, it's uh, I think it's a scientifically a good measurement because I understand they they need to be able to standardize what people are doing certain studies, and then we need to be able to standardize. Okay, what is a certain physical activity in normal life and then kind of give out the number out of that. And then you can you can use this accumulation of numbers uh, as, as a guidelines. But the problem for me is that it with the met hours is it stands from its base. So the original calculation for met hours was done with a 70 kilo man. So how many 70 kilo men do you actually get? <laughs> Not that <now>? many. <laughs> And then comes for me the second big, big peak, especially the last five years. I think the scientific world is going down this route and asking me, asking questions. Are female exactly the oh. same as men? Because this number is, is, is only for a 70 kilo. Don't get me man. started on that one. <laughs> so if you are a female, if you are a female, this number has, has, has almost zero correlation to, to you. So you couldn't, you couldn't, Pace your trainings on that number. Yeah. So these are two fundamental basic things which for me don't don't quite sit, and which I think if one wants to train, you better use uh, accumulative numbers and then percentages either of of heart rate. If you're using cycling, you can use power. Uh, you can use pace for running, and and then there is some other for for lifting weights. Some other equations can be used. Um, so yeah, uh, I think there is better ways individual basis. Is there better ways for large populations? Maybe I'm a big not. fan yes. of um, the, the the individual basis, um, and I understand that some people may not have the expertise to do that, or may not be able to afford an experienced coach to do that. But um, as you know from our first episode, I'm a big fan of people taking. Um, their own health in their own hands and their own scientific knowledge about certain topics in their own hands. So hopefully um, this podcast will inspire people to start actually looking a little bit into more things and start to determine what are their own individual needs. But the main message for me is that the the entry should be very, the message to people to enter any sort of cardiovascular training should be a very positive. That's why we need to keep the bar low. So if you keep the bar low, then that means that more people can actually enter this. Um, and to touch a little bit on the point of um, calculations being relevant to females, um, I actually recently attended a conference in London uh, where there was a couple of panels on um, the current situation in the science world about women's health and um I think that there's probably many people that are it. going to be really surprised by what you just said um, and maybe outraged, but it is 2023 and we still actually don't really 
know that much about the female body in terms of comparing it to like a male body um <laughs> you would be very very interested to uh know that it was probably i think it was like 2016 that it became compulsory to conduct studies um like on animal models both on male and female animal models before it was just people that study reproductive health that were looking at those models both genders now it's um yeah crazy now it's uh compulsory but um that wasn't that long ago so yeah the we're not, we're not gonna uh dive too much uh into wow. it but if anybody's surprised that's not just in terms of med calculations or cardiovascular health in general it's about many other things um in terms of cardiovascular system actually and cardiovascular disease uh females are notoriously have very very different symptoms and suffer from misdiagnosis of even acute cardiovascular events just because the symptoms sometimes presents differently than they are presented in males. So sometimes the guidelines are not very well constructed for females. So yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely beautiful point. And thanks for bringing that, uh, bringing it up. Uh, the other thing I just quickly kind of bring in that is, is what you mentioned, uh, the guidelines saying around eight uh, met hours per week is, is sufficient for, for cardiovascular training. Um, I totally agree that we need to have some sort of a low bar for people to, to even have a feasible um, goal. But realistically speaking, we need to be around 40, at least 40 met hours a week to, to have an impact on, on, a, on a serious level on the cardiovascular um, uh, health. Obviously, it depends, uh, but that's normally, I would say, between 35, 40 met hours is, is, is where you start getting gains and where you are, you can consider yourself uh, uh, fit and being able to um, prolong your longevity and then actually, yeah. So the number I know is, is a bit scary, but uh, that's the maybe the hard I think the, I think you will see. And I know we will once, talk once also. Once we start discussing the, um, some of um some of other aspects of um cardiovascular training and endurance training um i will come back to challenge you on that 40 40 hour um just just as a threat <laughs> at the middle of the podcast i will come back to challenge you on that hour <laughs> right. 40 hour I, i'm prepared i'm prepared in some ways I'm in some prepared. ways yeah, yeah let's see <laughs> bring it on bring it on yeah but anyway, running it back now to the study from 2019, where we what we started uh, talking about, which actually the the, the name the title of the study is is called Association of Cardiovascular Fitness with Long Term Mortality Among Adults Undergoing Exercise Treadmill Testing. Um, as I said, they have they had 122,000 uh, participants. Uh, they did um, uh, velo study on every single patient and then they, they, they accumulated the data and basically what they did is they stay, they categorized these 122,000 people into five categories um, and and then out of that you had a low so basically people with uh, very low uh, numbers out of the VO2 uh, measurement so they were people under 25th uh, percentile then you had the category below average there were people between 25 and 49 percentile then you had above average 50 and 74th percentile percentile then you had a high 
and they were people between 75 and uh, 97.6 percentile. And then you had elite performance performer, performers uh, who had about 27.7 uh, percentile. So what we can gather out of that study, and we don't have to spend huge time on, on that study, it just shows that the higher the VO2 max per person, the lower the all-cause mor mor morbidity was. Yep, correct. correct. And I actually think they make sense because when I think about VO2 max, the first thing that comes to my mind is those dead awful boring lectures i had like i don't know i think it was like 2013 where we were like learning about the cardiovascular system and organ systems at university and i was like <laughs> oh my god this is so boring that's the first thing that comes to my mind <laughs> sorry Martin. second thing that comes to my mind view to max per definition is a representation of oxygen consumption but something that i regularly have to remind people is when we think about that, it's not just about the heart and the coronary arteries and the lungs. This this is because it gets measured from, it's like a total body oxygen consumption, or at least it's like a proxy for a total body oxygen consumption. So it's not just for some of these like isolated structures. It also, because you have blood vessels everywhere, right? So it's not just a measure. So I think that's why Correct. it's such a powerful measure for all sorts of, uh, morbidities, comorbidities, uh, such as, as we said in the other study, Alzheimer's and diabetes, which are, you know, Alzheimer's is primarily a condition that affects the brain. And then diabetes is actually a systemic condition, cardiovascular disease is a condition that, but also some of those other diseases that are not labeled in there are also, so, you know, and all sorts of host of conditions that can actually kill someone. Um, so to me, it is very, very obvious, um, at least on like a whole body level, why that makes sense. Um, and on a molecular level, um, I think we all know the benefits of um, regular oxygenation and, um, you know, the exercises kind of exercise effect kind of flushing, but also in um, reduction of hypoxia in some parts of the body. And hypoxia is like very, very um, important physiological phenomenon, but it's also quite dangerous phenomenon in certain conditions, particularly in cancer. I'm not saying that whoever doesn't run and has high levels of hypoxia is going to get cancer, but hypoxia is related to and we to many diseases, and we know that a regular like exercise actually um, refreshes your tissues mm. in this kind of way, um, even if we don't delve into the positive effects of inflammation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, from the study, uh, what we also see is that when we, and I mentioned about those five categories, is um, for example, Kat, if we give a give an example here, um, we you're I would say between thirty and thirty year nine year old, some somewhere in this. I'm thirty years I old, say, so I right? am in that group. Correct. Uh, yes, you're right. Made it. Or you're right. You just made it there. So, um, I'm just kind of like trying to give a picture here. Is that if if a person goes to to uh, get their VO2 max measured, and and then your outcome is let's say, or what I would really like your outcome to be is in in your age group, it would be around 39 to 48 milliliters per uh, per minute per kilogram. I'm not sure it's going to be that Meaning one. <laughs> that's kind of like the the, the, that would put you 
So that would be you would be in the high uh, uh, group or high high subgroup, and then I mean from the from the study you see that your uh, risk of of um, comorbidity is is relatively low versus, for example, the people at the low uh, low group, and um, so. What, that's why I think the study is super beautiful. Is it kind of gives people really to a possibility to to be able to say, okay, let's do the measurement, and we get the number, and then that's a reality where you are at the moment. So let's say you are you are a woman at your your thirties, and your number is somewhere between twenty five to thirty five milliliters per uh, VO two max is between twenty five to thirty five. Uh, it's it's uh, it's it's a, it's a very low number. And that means there is a lot of work to do, uh, but it also gives them the direction and possibilities what to what needs to be done. And that goes back to what we talked about before, uh, importance of the VO2 max. Um, so I would say from that study, I would say the, the guidelines, we, we need to push people to at least be in this high uh, category. Now, we don't. I'm not talking about the elite category. Uh, I'm talking about the high, so it's, it's one level uh, lower. Uh, below the, the elite uh, performance performers and just to make sure the elite performers were just within this study they are not the high level athletes in the world they would be off the charts here so especially in the endurance sport athletes they would be off the charts i think that's a really important uh, so it doesn't, and i'm happy actually that there is any isn't any yeah yeah and i'm super happy that there isn't any because they're just not it's it's not important it's not relevant for for a normal person. They are totally out of other plan on the, on uh, from the other planet, and uh, we don't need to compare our physiological demand, sorry capabilities with uh, with them. So that's why I, I like to use the word elite performance within this study. Uh, obviously, if you want to be super healthy and and on the safe side, you want to be in that category, because if you compare the the elite performers and the lowest level uh, if I, my memory serves me correct it's about five fold difference uh, to all cause mortality so it's basically uh, five times difference um, so the people in the in the low group they are more five times more likely to to end up uh, or basically die earlier way earlier compared to the group people in an in, in elite uh, group or in the high high performance group. I, I, I think that what you said is a super important consideration that they were classified as elite within the group because in order to be participant to that study, then you had to be referred for exercise testing. <laughs> so um, to be referred to exercise testing, you know, it's uh, not everybody gets referred to that, right? So... Um, I think that's very promising and it's a very, very positive message that you don't have to be a super ultra marathon runner or elite um, endurance athlete in order to be healthy. In fact, <laughs> we do have some studies on the menu today that actually showed that um, being at the highest uh, pro athlete level doesn't necessarily mean and doesn't necessarily promise a long term cardiovascular health. You, you mentioned before about uh, the high-level uh, athletes uh, and their cardiovascular health not being maybe always the, the, the best or, or not maybe the healthiest uh, out there. So uh, if you could elaborate oh, okay, on that. Okay, okay, uh, I got what you mean. Well, this is actually something that I got into recently, um, as you're aware. 
Um, I know I've probably spent like more than seven to eight years as cardiovascular researcher and never really actually read much about this. Um, and when I actually started going into literature, for a good reason, because it's, it's not really an active topic of discussion up until recently. Um, and the reason for that, I'm, I'm trying to think what is the reason why it hasn't been such an intense topic of study. Um, and I think probably for a long time, people were thinking that, oh, I don't know, if you're like, if you're like elite um, endurance athlete, then you're protected from death, you're immortal. Like you're the healthiest human and the healthiest specimen alive, it's absolutely fine. Um, which is definitely not the case, uh, unfortunately. And I think based from my own uh, research, it all started once I stumbled across a German study that looked at elite marathon runners. And I don't know why they looked into those, but they went in to look into them and they actually realized that those elite marathon runners were full. Their, their coronary um, blood vessels, which are the blood vessels that supply the heart, uh, were full of like plaques. Um, and for uh, our listeners who don't know what plaque is, uh, coronary plaque is suggests basically that the 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 lumen of the blood vessel, the the, the I don't know how to explain it, the blood vessel itself um, starts to get occluded. I hope that makes sense. Um, and they were full of plaques, and so that actually quite puzzled the scientific community quite a lot. Um, so more and more studies started to come out, but um, it's not just about the plaques. Um, once um, clinicians and scientists started to delve a little bit more into uh, studying athletes' hearts, and it's a very well-known uh, phenomenon, uh, left uh, ventricular hypertrophy, which to some degree, it's a very, very positive adaptation. And in fact, everybody should be aiming to have some some kind of uh, positive adaptation like this because it's important that you have a very strong and healthy cardiovascular muscle but in some actually very elite athletes the left ventricle left ventricles and i promise that we're not going to speak about that too much but i'm going to say this quickly <laughs> um the their left ventricles become so thick that um the, the, the heart is becoming hypoxic and hypoxic means lack of oxygen because though the muscle is proliferating there's actually not enough supply to the heart so that creates like a very, very intense and very unpleasant symptoms. And it could actually um, lead to cardiac arrest, which we know that cardiac arrest, um, if you have cardiac arrest, your chance of mortality is really, really high. If you're not in the proximity of a defibrillator or somebody that's really experienced with CPR, like your journey to the hospital gets late. So anyway, I'm going to finish that here. But also um, cardiac scarring, so development of fibrosis, which... Um, Perhaps maybe to a normal person, people will think like, oh, like normal people, hearts don't develop fibrosis. Um, only fibrosis is a very um, characteristic process that occurs during cardiovascular injuries, such as myocardium infarct or heart attack. Um, but actually some myocardium fibrosis can occur in very, very elite athletes as well. Um, and we all have heard um, in, in the news particularly about um, I don't know, football players or um, all the kind of sports people that just literally just drop dead right, out of nothing or they went into uh, cardiac arrest. So it is common in elite athletes um, and they're not particularly protected. But the part that I want to circle back to is the study with the marathon runners, which led me to read some of the other studies that um, uh, I brought to your attention, in particular the Mark 1 and the Mark 2 studies. Um, where there was actually shown that 
uh, older athletes, I must emphasize older, middle age or old athletes, so about 40 years or older, um, particularly the uh, range between 50 and 60, um, they actually have uh, an enormous amount of coronary plaques, um, which are not necessarily the same composition as, for example, somebody that is sedentary and eats loads of um, sugar and high fat diet. Um, they're not exactly the same composition, um, but they are occlusion nonetheless. So um, they are actually athletes that, because the arteries become so occluded, they need to um, go for therapies such as revasculation therapy, also commonly known as uh, coronary bypass. Um, so I'm, 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 not, I'm not sure if uh, you have any questions at this stage or should we like dive in deeper a little bit into this? Um, I know that um, plaques or uh, atherosclerosis is kind yeah, of like a term that's uh, kind of thrown around. Let's dive into that. Yeah. Uh... Um, it, it, it's a term that's thrown around, yeah. Yeah, let's dive into that uh, topic too. But I actually have a question for you. I wanted Go to for ask it. for already for a while, <laughs> but somehow always uh, skips my mind. So, and and this uh, this studies uh, you just mentioned, uh, the Mark II study, especially uh, because we're going to talk about it uh, right after. Um, look, one of the positive side effects effects of training, especially endurance training, is. Um, enlargement of uh, blood vessels yes right um so adapt maybe maybe adapting and then uh, maybe adapting yeah. of their smooth muscle layer is that what you mean so the yeah yeah so there is is it, for sure um, for sure um there is also change uh, the the volume uh, changes with the more with the training of the of the blood vessel or you would say uh, not so there is several adaptations that can occur so your blood vessels can become more responsive to um, cardiovascular training and they could develop like arteries by nature are more thicker than veins for example so arteries by nature are designed to withstand uh, elevated levels of blood pressure, but arteries of athletes, um, they are more kind of like muscular in a way that, but like a pliable muscle. I don't know if that makes sense. Like they are just more trained to withstand this. And um, this is probably due to the cyclic nature of stretch of those cells, because I know um, we speak about blood vessels, but blood vessels are composed of different types of cells so in particular some of the cells are very highly responsive to the, the cyclic stretch which can make them i'm going to say proliferate but is proliferate a word that people normally use let's say that they they, they can expand in number <laughs> maybe that's better <laughs> they can expand in number but in a very very yep, healthy exactly. contained way where it actually improves the function of the blood vessel rather than being a detrimental so, so that would happen probably just in a regular moderate or moderate slash high um, cardiovascular training, but not not in elite, at least in older age from what okay. the current studies are showing. Um, because the, the older people, they have had those adaptations, but something along the way has happened that the composition of the cells um, in those blood vessels has changed um and they start to become a little bit different 
and they start to deposit um, those plaques. Um, I, I hope that's I hope that's making it clear. It might it might be better if I start from the beginning of how it all happens, both in non-trained uh, and trained individuals, because I think it will make sense. Because so to begin sure. with. Yeah, sure. Go for it. Let, so how let's it go to start? the beginning. <laughs> this We just said that this podcast is going to take a long time, and it's definitely going yes, to take please. a long time. <laughs> so if we start from the beginning, blood vessels have three layers, mainly. So they're more particularly more defined in arteries. Um, so they have the, the inner one, which is um, the one that's in contact with the blood. They're called the endothelium cells. And they're like super smart cells because... Not only they line your blood vessels, but they can also help you with injuries. Um, for example, they are the ones that would clot the blood, so you know don't bleed to death. Um, they also regulate the tone, so they communicate with the muscular cells, which is the second layer. Um, they communicate directly with those cells to regulate how they respond to blood pressure or to mechanical stimuli or whole sorts of things. Um, they communicate with your immune system. They let your immune system come in uh, into the blood vessels to repair an injury or kind of fight a virus or something like that. And then you have the outer layer where you have, uh, I don't know how to call the outer layer because the outer layer previously was uh, previously was thought it was just like, I don't know, like connective tissue and some like cells and fat. And this is where mm -hmm. the, actually the nerves the nerves and the neurons actually connected blood vessels on the outer layer and we thought that their function was quite insignificant but i would probably say in the last i'm just gonna ballpark it maybe like five six years um where our techniques are becoming unbiased and very large-scale techniques of studying blood vessels we're actually realizing that those cells are actually really really important um so the cells all the three layers do communicate and cells from each layer can actually migrate um, to the other layer, which I think is very, very prominent in occlusions, plaques, atherosclerosis, whatever way you call it, is very, very prominent. But to go back to what happens at first is, as you can imagine, with having a very thin one layer of cells, such as the endothelium, they are the ones that are going to get damaged first. So imagine you're just somebody that's like, I don't know, but maybe like me, <laughs> who's my view too. Max is not great. I think if you if you measure it, people are going to be like, "I'm so disappointed from you, Kat." Um, so <laughs> we're going to stay clear of that. But imagine how I just decide. We still have some work to do. Yeah. Don't worry, we have some time. Imagine I go tomorrow and I start running and I go hard at it. I'm telling you, like more than 50, 60 met hours per week, and I'm just going hard at it. Well, my endothelium is actually going to suffer quite a lot because that's a lot of very, very acute mechanical damage. Because another thing that the endothelial cells do, and this is so, so smart, it, we only actually found out about this less than 10 years ago. Um, uh, we identified the exact molecular way of how endothelial cells actually sense the mechanical tension in the blood vessels. And in science, we call it shear stress, but essentially endothelial cells are really smart and they can actually sense how the blood passes through your blood vessels. So they can sense the mechanical force, the physical mechanical force of the blood flushing through. And that's actually how they produce nitric oxygen nitric oxide, not oxygen, nitric oxide, uh, in order to know when to relax and when to vasoconstrict. So it's actually a very, very smart thing. But imagine if you suddenly apply an enormous amount of mechanical damage. And some of these molecular sensors 
Um, they operate really well in optimum conditions where the shear stress is normal. Um, but when it becomes too much, so just overload of mechanical damage by me going for 60 meta hours per week, for example, I'm just ballparking, um, then some of those cells start to get damaged. And some of those molecular sensors are actually starting to become a little bit more pro-inflammatory, uh, to say it that way. And imagine if I was like, well, I exercise 60 my hours per week. I'm just going to eat whatever I want. <laughs> so I'm just like stuffing myself with like fats and sugars to keep my fuel high. But then I've scheduled the run tomorrow morning at 5 a.m. I'm really tired, but I'm going to get up at 5 a.m. and I'm just going to do the run. I'm going to be really disciplined and I don't have time for recovery. So essentially what can happen a long time is that because that's my hypothesis, that because maybe there's no optimum recovery or it's just too much mechanical damage, um, the cells can actually change phenotype. Uh, and by phenotype, I mean they can change their identity of what they're becoming. I promise, Martin, this is going to make sense in a little bit. <laughs> and I'm going to explain where my hypothesis is. It already makes sense. And I'm going to I'm going to explain where my hypothesis is coming it. from. And I'm going to explain to you also, because you challenged me on my animal model studies, but I'll explain to you why we can't measure that in humans. Um, so, and then those cells, they start to change their identity. So in people that have calcified plaques, such as older, middle-aged endurance athletes, um, the endothelial cells can actually change to become a little bit more of a different type of cell. Um, and they actually become cells that have the capabilities of depositing more calcium. Does that make sense? So mm -hmm. a lot of mechanical overload, not enough I recovery, see. because... We are when we, in in early biology classes, we are told that oh, you know, you get born with stem cells, and then those stem cells become like finally identity of like this is just a blood vessel cell. No, they actually have the capabilities to be on a spectrum, and that spectrum is usually governed by things like could be mechanical damage, could be inflammation, these kind of things, oxidative damage, right? The, the, is this starting to make sense? So that is just the first layer. Um, so this is my yes, this is my hypothesis absolutely. that what might happen in athletes <laughs> it might not it might be the mechanical damage because if somebody that's not um, somebody that's not exercising it has sedentary life and really likes their sugar and fat um, what happens with them is that inner layer that endothelial layer damage uh, actually occurs due to very very high level of hyperglycemia so very high levels of blood sugar. But also because mm -hmm. blood sugar is very oxidative, then you have like lots of fats and then you have lots of cholesterol in the shape of LDL, but not just LDLs, triglycerides. Please, whoever's listening, start Googling triglycerides. <laughs> this is our new thing in uh, vascular biology that we actually realized that we've actually missed another dark horse and we don't know how to treat it. <laughs> um, so <laughs> triglycerides. And then all of these start to oxidize and damage the endothelial vessels. In, this is the early the early stage of everything. And obviously, some of those um, people that have high blood sugar, high fat, they will probably have some hypertension and then won't have those positive adaptations, which somebody that's an elite athlete will be able to withstand. And maybe that's why we see those plaques developing so so much later. Um, so yeah, that's that does that's the layer to the first damage. However, <laughs> This this is where it starts to get complicated. However, However. <laughs> it starts to get complicated. So 
we call it endothelial dysfunction, but endothelial dysfunction is the hallmark of atherosclerosis, but that's how it all begins. And that could actually begin a very early on in life. I hope no one's actually get scared. The second part is that, remember how I told you about the second layer, which is the muscular layer, and then the third layer, which is the layer that we thought that doesn't do anything, but actually does quite a lot. Um, so the second layer is the muscular layer. Um, I have bad news for everybody. Um, those guys that are responsive to a cyclic stretch, um, they actually sense mechanical damage. Um, they are very, very capable of becoming cells that um, can deposit calcium a lot. So imagine if you overload them with mechanical damage, they actually have capabilities of becoming, um, we, call, we call it um, osteochondrogenesis, um, which no one that should listen to this should Google this and you shouldn't concern yourself with this, but in case anybody's interested, they almost like become more like bone cells, right? So I, I, I think maybe people will find out more um, curiously, but again, those move muscle cells are not terminally, their identity is not terminal, so they can move to those different types of cells. Um, we know that in non in a non-trained individuals, um, the immune system obviously has a huge play in this because all of these processes and mechanical damage will actually um, make your endothelial cells and vascular smooth muscle cells cry to the immune cell, immune system for help. And they'll be like, oh, just come and help me in here. And then the more damage there is, you know, we, know, we all know that exercise is anti-inflammatory, which is true, 100% true. Um, if you exercise and have adequate recovery and adaptation, you... Well, yes yes and no, actually. I mean, you you will have an acute uh, inflammatory response, most of uh, in the muscle, in the tendon, in the, in the, in the as you say, in the, in the uh, blood vessels and so on. So, yes, it is, but... But it depends how long the inflammatory signal persists. So if you have... Uh, inflammatory signal for a prolonged period of time without adequate right. inflammatory yeah. resolution, then all of those cells that I'm talking about, they will start to change into all these different things that would produce more calcium. I'm speaking right now purely about the athletes, but they can also become some foam cells. And we know that um, maybe I'm Martin, you're aware of this foam cells are, um, they were originally thought to be only coming from the immune system that are engulfing LDL and all these kind of things, but um, I have bad news for everybody again. Um, your smooth muscle cells can become foam cells too. <laughs> and then I'm going to try and wrap it up quickly in here. And then we move to the third layer where um, it's actually your other type of cells, which are fat cells or fibroblasts. Um, they, as the name says, fibroblasts are very, very capable of depositing more um, of those fibrotic um um, molecules and uh, to become your blood vessels more fibrotic and more diseased um, so they can actually immigrate as well to contribute to the occlusion because all of this is actually all of these cells are depositing things but they're also like expanding as well but not in a healthy way they because they they have those kind of like plaques and centers um, cores of expansion they actually expand outward in the blood vessel which actually results into this occlusion and then finally, we have um, very, very interesting. This is like literally fresh off the oven. A paper in uh, Nature came in at 2021, 2022, um, <laughs> where they actually looked at how your nervous system can actually guide immune systems, uh, immune system cells, and 
fibroblasts from that not important, but very, very important outer layer towards the plaques. So there is an involvement of your sympathetic nervous system in that as well. So I promise I was going to keep it simple, but I probably overcomplicated it. But the truth is that many, many things can go wrong. So if if we actually start to hypothesize in somebody that's doing more than 50 to 60 med hours per week um, and maybe not adequately recovering or maybe not engaging in strategies for adequately recovery, um, then to me, it's actually becoming very, very obvious why they're developing those plaques. And to me, it's not puzzling anymore. I overloaded you with information. I apologize. <laughs> but can, can we actually... <laughs> No, it's it's beautiful, and uh, but it's more actually. Can we actually say that uh, that these plugs, in the essence, they are actually dangerous? So, the calcified pl- for, the for calcified plugs um, <laughs> are plugs nonetheless. Um, so it depends on the calcification scores. So I've actually looked at this, and literature seems to be. Quite, there is a consensus in literature that the calcification score system that currently exists is very, very reliable. So um, it really depends on your calcification score um, as well. But to I'm not going to explain what the score is because no one cares, actually. Um, but uh, basically, if you have a larger piece of calcified plaque, and sometimes they actually literally look like a like a little bone within your blood vessel. It's a little scary when you see it on a microscopic level. Um, are safer than um, safer than small bits of calcium, bony bits, depositions, because uh, the more you have of them, the more destabilized they mm-hmm. are. Well, if you have one big chunk, then that big chunk actually could develop um, almost like a little of a fibrotic hug around it uh, and can become a little bit more stable. While if you have these like small um, parts of calcium that disrupt the integrity of the vessel around them, um, there's more opportunity for rupture. At least that's what the papers tell me. I know it probably makes not much sense, but they, 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 they can be more stable. Um, but... The more they grow in size, the more you're going to be experiencing symptoms of uh, cardiac hypoxia, also known as angina, which could be chest pains, breathlessness, and things like that. Um, That's why a lot of master athletes sometimes go to the cardiac clinic and they get like this full surprise of like, oh, but I've been like a lifelong athlete. Um, And then the truth is like, yeah, but your heart is still not adequately supplied, supplied with blood and oxygen. So... It's all about being able to sustain the demand um, of the heart. So if your blood vessels become more and more occluded, then you're not going to be able to sustain the demand, uh, regardless of rupture. So that's why sometimes we see some cardiac arrests and things like that. And you don't, you, you probably don't want to me to tell you what would happen if like a big or a small chunk of calcified plaque ruptures, because <laughs> that is not a simple thing. To be able, so basically, there's no pharmacological agent that can, um, let's say, you have a small occlusion and you have like a very small scale um, myocardium infarction. Um, this is not something that you can treat pharmacology. This is something that you just need to go in and just get it out. Um, so, it, it's getting complicated because I don't want people to fear exercise. I just think that um, from from like an applied point of view um 
people should be aware of how much damage you're doing per week um, and whether you have an adequate recovery for not just your muscles, but for your blood vessels to recover. Yeah, and for our listeners also, we what we're kind of referencing along along this this uh, this last part is 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 really referencing the Mark II study, where where they did extensive uh, review on on the on the data and uh, and I mean there they can also they they brought it out quite quite clearly that um, the the plugs are there. Um, Sometimes they are, uh, or they can be associated with more uh, risk, but it's it's not always that uh, that if there is a plug that it, it's uh, it's it's necessarily dangerous or or one should have tried to avoid that because also we know I'm pretty sure we could take uh, twenty people who have never done any physical activity and they will have either similar or even worse plugs uh, and maybe a bit different type of plug. Uh, so I would kind of round it back and say, yep, there is positives and there's negatives. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, the physical activity is what the human body is designed to do in different shapes and forms. And can we be smart about it? Sure. Um, is doing more better than doing less? Again, it depends. Maybe not. Uh, so, most likely, the the, the 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 smart area is somewhere in between. Especially for most people who are not participating in high level sports. Obviously, if you're an athlete, then your your goal is is totally different, and you're not really interested how many plugs you're uh, you are you're collecting and who has most of the the plugs. Um, then you're very goal driven on your on your objective to to win and then be the better the best as you as you can. But for us mere mortals, um, I think it's it's super important and it's valuable to to know that. And also, what the Mark study two study is talking about is, is intensity Absolutely. versus volume. And and obviously you can you can elaborate on that way more. But but the study is indicating quite clearly that. The volume itself is 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 not necessarily a bad thing, and it's it's not causing um, too much of a damage to the to the heart uh, to the vessels, blood vessels. It's more of the question of the definitely. Intensity. So the intensity. And yeah, uh, if you want to say a few things about that before I I, I jump in with some of the practical. Yeah. So aspects the about the the Mark II study um, is a continuation of the Mark One study, which the Mark One study was like. Okay, let's describe that these athletes are having like this enormous amount of atherosclerosis. Great. So the Mark II study question was, is it the volume of exercise that they do or is it the intensity? And what they've actually found is that intensity is actually um, the most uh, likely predictor of formation of those uh, plaques. And I feel like if my explanation to why that may happen made any sense to anybody on a molecular level i think i, I, I think my hypothesis actually um explained this um pretty, pretty pretty kind of fits in pretty well because the more intense you're exercising the more mechanical damage would be uh versus if you have a volume a high volume of exercise um then uh, then presumably then you have more time to recover um or at least you're not or at least you're not just 
you're probably exercising more, but less intent, intensely, if that makes sense. Um, something to say, actually, when I actually look close at the figures, is that um, with the exercise volume, at the medium and high, it's not like there's no... It's not like there's no formation of plaques at all. It's just they're not significant. So I think this, again, cautions the individual basis of every individual needs to figure out what's best for them. Um, and Martin, you're going to have some practical notes on that. But I just want to quickly wrap it up to say that um, in athletes, especially in elite athletes, um, this is not something that we have biomarkers for. It's not something that you could easily figure out um, unless you go for uh, computer tomography angiogram. So it's very, very like simple that these things, you, ne- you, never, you might never ever have symptoms of that. And you may be living like until 90, 100 years old. So uh, last, 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 like the, the least thing I want is like anybody's just being scared of exercise. That's not what I'm trying to say at all. I think the only thing I want people to take away from this is actually caution of, how much you exercise, and if you have any abnormal symptoms, then go get checked out. That's uh, I think screening is actually some of the recommendations is actually probably just screening um, until we get actually some reliable biomarkers that you could just get a simple blood test done, and then that will tell you whether you are overdoing it or not. Um, until that's done, regular screening. If anybody is able to do it, if anybody's actually taking their exercise really really seriously and they want to perform at elite level, I think screening should be the benchmark. There was actually a really nice Italian study that suggested that in young athletes, um, to prevent severe cardiovascular events, the best way is screening, because again, we don't have any biomarkers right now. And it's very difficult for us to um, actually monitor the progression of these things, uh, because what we have in humans is either blood tests or imaging. We don't have anything that we can continuously use. Sure, you could use your VO2 max for like your um, cardiovascular performance. You could use your heart rate and your blood pressure as kind of like a, a like proxies to your cardiovascular health. But your heart will be beating and will be sustaining um, these parameters quite normal for a long time until the occlusion becomes really, really bad. Um, so quite a lot of times these things are silent. Um, and again, really, really want to reiterate that doesn't mean that you're going to get a heart attack just because you have calcified plaques. Um, <laughs> but it's important for every individual to decide, am I pushing too hard? Am I recovering? Okay. Is my diet okay? Because you can never out-train a bad diet. <laughs> um, and I'm going to finish on this patronizing note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I just on a, on a practical note, what I can say is like, look, um, I've been doing sports for most of my life and I've been around for different uh, sports for quite a few years. Um, I mean, but being a bike rider myself, uh, you often go on, on a bike with your friends and you just start bashing out and then see who, who, who survives the longest uh, or furthest uh, and, and so on. And, and that's basically what we're talking about here. And I, and I know how easy it is to kind of let it go or let it, let the session go out of the control because if you are, your um not even an ego but you you just it's, it's also fun to ride fast yeah. for example or go hard it's fun it's it's quite boring and and to be slow i must say uh so <laughs> and that's maybe sometimes i think where things get a bit uh bit uh, especially in amateur athletes it gets a bit gray is 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 you kind of have to be slow before you can allow to be fast 
and this is definitely what I've done in the past as as a multiple times as a mistake is that I just ride and ride and 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 until I'm dead and then I pick up myself and I ride again next day when I, until I'm dead and but now I, I I've learned and I I know that I can still do that by physiologically I can still do that but uh, but it's not probably the best way to build up uh, my cardiovascular health and maybe even not the quickest way so kind of really going along the lines what what the study is actually saying is that the volume is there to build the base and 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 that's also what I would like to and I tell all, to every one of my patients is that we first we need to increase or 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 speed up the whole process but the zone training and two training and the, and the base training it's just so useful for the whole mitochondria and that takes us to a totally different topic but but the the the, the health of the mitochondria it becomes another key uh, uh, fundamental physiological um, indicators uh, so you there's there's not really many other Kind of zones one can train to be able to build up these uh, these mitochondria, which are important then for for energy production and, and so on. And diabetes, anything whatever. like mitochondria or integrity but... is important <laughs> literally for anything. And you know that that's the importance of like exercising and recovering, and particularly in recovery strategies, um, because you could create mitochondrial damage with over exercising, right? But during if you're if so that's yeah, basically you, high you, intensity training yeah that's basically what you're saying so oftentimes when when a, when an athlete races a lot they need a break after after a lot of races uh, race days and that's basically is, 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 is first one thing is obviously that you need to be able to emotionally again fit to, to train and if you race hard and train hard you're going to get emotionally tired from that but physiologically also you're going to burn a lot of mitochondria you're going to kill a lot of them in, in this acidic environment so you need time Absolutely. to rebuild that and that's exactly i think i hope you were yeah no 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 it's, it's 100 percent so um, once you actually start damaging mitochondria, um, there is a process that called mitophagy that occurs. So here's another one. Please, people, like now, I, I just hope that this podcast doesn't trigger a movement that call like, oh my God, let's create protocols to like trigger your mitophagy instead of your autophagy. Because I've seen like some ridiculous statements of like, oh, use this protocol to trigger autophagy. Anyway, <laughs> this is not a podcast about my frustration with social media. Um, in order for your mitophagy to occur, you do need an adequate uh, recovery um, and you do need uh, the adequate recovery in order to rebuild as well. Because obviously like your mitogenesis, which is the formation of new mitochondria and your mitophagy are two processes that are interrelated and you need to let your body do its job. And if you only engage in like nice recovery protocols, which I think it's more like trial and error for people, there's no... At least in my opinion, there's never one thing that works really well, apart from sleep. <laughs> um, um, it, it, you'll never be able to regain the ability. And again, it's it's it, it's with the same thing that I was speaking about, the cells of your blood vessels, because obviously they have mitochondria. Um, the more damage you pile on, the less um, easy it is become to clear the damage and renew, right? So... It's 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 just basic mm-hmm. it's basic biology from the molecular from like the this this absolutely small um, organelle such as a mitochondria to the whole body. And I'm sure there's going to be uh, quite a few podcast episodes, way more detailed uh, around mitochondria and then the physiological importance. 
um, and then how one can affect this with training and, and so on. But to to finish off today's episode, um, I'm just going to say very kind of like a simple practical uh, to some practical tips to 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 tie it all together regarding uh, the training aspects of, of of cardiovascular health. Um, I do think that we should train both extremes, both end of the spectrum. I think we need to train the the base, so the zone two training, which is then a nice. I wouldn't say easy, but it's a zone where if I would do a lactate test, you're around below two millimoles of lactate. It's a it's a pace where you can. You can uh, you are breathing a bit, but you're still able to talk, and you should be able to still talk, breathe through the nose. So if you would tape your mouth, you would still be able to 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 breathe. So that's kind of a, this this kind of a pace, and you probably need around two three hours of this kind of activity per week. And then you do need some work of top top uh, top end work. So the VO two uh, uh, work. So in cycling, we normally do. Uh, uh, four by four uh, intervals of five by five. There is different versions of that. I normally start off by four by four, then increasing it to five by four, then six by four, and then sometimes they go a little bit longer. Um, so you you do want to touch both sides of the spectrum uh, because you want to keep the my uh, the first of all you want to build the mitochondria, but on the other hand you want to keep and uh, you want to build your your VO two max. Um, and on top of that, you need this maybe. An hour per week for a strength part, which we will cover in, in depth in, in our next uh, episode. But so these would be basically the three pillars: would be the endurance part through the cardiovascular work, then through through as a slower paced, then high end uh, up to 25 minutes total. It's it's not a lot. It's it's another long session, and then you need your strength work about uh, 30 minutes to an an an. an hour per, per week then i think you are more or less in in a ballpark of of being able to to build the base and push week by week your your health and and really kind of think about the long longevity in, in the best uh, best sense for the years to to come and being active in a society still to to come and enjoy the physical activities can't disagree with anything you said <laughs> it was beautifully phrased um <laughs> yeah oh, that's too bad we can't finish the first episode on on, on agreement but I, okay, said that I, I think we, we have done a good job here as you said at the beginning it's going to be a long episode you can't disagree I yes you can't, can't. Disagree. I, I i forced her before yeah. that but anyway <laughs> We are hour and 15 into this podcast episode. So I think we're going to call it the day, the, the day, Kat. Uh, anything super important you think we should mention before we um, wrap this up? I think, like, I'm probably just going to, like, keep quiet because you know that once once I start going, it's just never ending. So um, I'm just going to keep it quiet. I think there's a couple of points that I just want to reiterate, like, super fast, like, flash, <laughs> um, is that... Um, Anybody should be looking to enter any sort of cardiovascular training. Um, more like any sort of than nothing is way better than nothing, obviously. Um, and I absolutely love what Martin said that you need to start slow before you move fast. Super, super important um, in order for you to be um, in tune with your body's own natural, beautiful, incredible ways of healing itself. Um, 
so that's kind of for me I think further on in the podcast we're probably going to cover a lot of recovery strategies because um, Martin just um, summarized uh, though simply and we're probably going to expand it in future episodes um, how what are the aims of people that should be aiming for to cover in a week um, to just to cover all your bases in terms of adequate stimulus for your cardiovascular system but also for your other systems um, but I think it's important for each individual to really really emphasize on recovery and as I said we'll be talking about recovery strategies in the future so let's see Thank you very much, Kat. Thanks, everyone, very much for listening. And we are looking forward to any feedback you have. Until then, uh, looking forward to speaking with you, Kat, soon. Me, and me too. Thank you for listening care. to me as usual. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> the information on the Framework podcast, including text, graphics, images, or any audio material, is for informational purposes only. And it may not be appropriate or applicable for your individual circumstances. The Framework podcast does not provide medical, professional or licensed advice and is not a substitute for a consultation with a healthcare professional. You should seek medical advice from a qualified healthcare professional for any questions and concerns.